We continue the Shir in Navi Jewish history. As we stated, David HaMelech, King David, decided to settle in the land of the Philistines, where he considered himself safer than in the land of Israel, with the threat of King Shoal seeking his life, wanting to destroy him. So he figured he'd be better off living in the land of the Philistines, whom he could cope with. Because if he was attacked by a Philistine, he could defend himself and kill his adversary. He could not raise a hand against the fellow Jew. So he settled among the Philistines. He met the king of the Philistines, Ochish, the king of Gas, who gave him a village for himself and his 600 followers, a village of Tziklag. He stayed there peacefully, as far as the Philistines were aware. Quietly, at night, he would steal out with his men, plunder and kill entire villages of the Philistines, trying to minimize the threat of the enemy of the Jews. This went on for some time, and now we come to the final chapter in the life of King Shoal. Now this final chapter is a very intriguing one. Extremely interesting, and I cannot help but mention something in retrospect to go back many years, not too many years ago, sort of reminiscing the days when I was a youth. Of course, I use that term literally. Nowadays, they speak about criminals being youths. A youth of 35 who took drugs and so on, committed crimes. In those days, a person was a youth until the age of 13. Then he was mature, a man, and with all responsibilities. As a youth in the yeshiva, about the age of six or seven, we had special classes in Jewish history. In addition to learning Chumash, or eventually Gemara, on Fridays we were granted the privilege of being able to sit through an hour or so of storytelling by the rabbi at that time in Jewish history. And I recall very clearly to this day that when we get to this part of the story, the final phase of King Shoal's life, this was one of the most touching stories I could ever recall hearing. At that time, it, was, it became so emotional that returning home, the entire day was filled with the pathos, just reviewing the story itself. And so to this day, though I have left the age of youthhood, I still feel that same heart-tugging experience when thinking about the details of the story. I hope that it will affect everyone here the same, although you're a little older than I was at the time, but the story is not. The story is ageless. story from the Torah. Now, as we said, King Shul was alone now. King David had left him, and he became aware of the fact that the Philistines were mobilizing gathering for a definite showdown. This was to be what was known as the final battle between the Philistines and the Jews, major battle, a battle which King Shoal dreaded, because he felt subconsciously, deep in the recesses of his mind, he felt that a defeat awaited him. His conscience bothered him over what he had done in the past, acts that he had committed, and so he felt this gnawing fear about the outcome of this battle. Meanwhile, King David was fully aware of the pending battle because 
King Ochish told King David that they were going at the battle against the Jews and that he was very happy to have King David on his side to help him. And so King David readily accepted this invitation to assist in this battle, planning to act as a rear attack against the Philistines while they'd be attacked from the front by the Jews. However, this, his hopes were short-lived because the generals of Ochish, who found out that King David was coming along the battle, became furious with the king, and they insisted that the kings at least send King David back. He cannot be trusted in battle. They saw through his ruse, and so he was forced to go back. I will come back to this part of the story later. Let's first see what happened with King Shaul, the most important part. King Shaul, as we said, dreaded, afraid of the outcome of this battle, and he was desperate his need to find out the outcome. So he called upon the prophets for any prognosis they could offer, and they refused to answer him. They had no message from heaven for him. He tried the Urim Betumim, the chest plate of the Kohen Gadol, which at that time was in the hands of the Kohen Gadol, who was with King David. He sent spies to King David to get them to question the Urim Betumim, the chest plate of the Kohen Gadol, and again there was no reply. The reason of no reply, of course, was the fact that the Kohen Gadol, or that which he represented, was opposed, was angry with King Shaul for having wiped out the entire family of the Kohanim, the city of Nov. He get no answer from the prophets, from the Kohen Gadol, from heaven, through his prayers, and so he finally turned to last resort, and that was to get a woman who was a witch, or a magician who could commune with the dead. This was called a Baalas Ov. A Baalas Ov, the Torah says, is a crime for which the penalty is death. And it is the duty of the king of the Jews, the duty of a Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, to weed out every one of these magicians and to put them to death. This King Shoal had done very carefully, but he felt now that perhaps there might be one that remained who had escaped this death penalty. So he inquired about, and he found out that his own general, Avner, his very loyal general, knew of a woman who was a Balas Oath, a magician, a sorceress. How come she had remained alive? The fact was that this was Avner's own mother. And so he requested Avner take him to her. He would go dressed in civilian clothes, pretend that he was an ordinary person, because if she knew that he was the king, she'd be afraid to speak to him. It would mean her imminent death. He came to her home, and the way this meeting worked with the dead was that the person requesting this meeting would mention his desire to this witch, magician, in turn, this magician would use the magical powers to make contact with the dead person and draw that dead person down and then the result would be that the magician could see the body of the dead person but could hear nothing. A person demanding this meeting could hear the voice speak to this dead person, to the deceased, but could not see it. That means that if she was successful, King Shoal asked her 
to make contact with Shmuel the prophet, the only person he felt who could help him, tell him the future, what the result of his battle would be. And so he asked her to bring the soul of Shmuel the prophet to earth, where he could communicate with him. Uh, first, she was very fearful and denied the fact that she was a magician. She said, if the king finds out, he put to death. King Shaul said to her, I promise you that the king will not find out, and secondly, that you will remain alive. You have nothing to fear. Help me in this case. Bring the person I want. She finally agreed with encouragement by her son, Avner the general, and so she summoned the soul of Shmuel the prophet. Torah says that King Shaul waited very anxiously with trepidation, first as to what success she would have in summoning him, secondly, what his reply would be. Finally, after a short period of time, she let out a scream. And King Shaul jumped up and asked, what is it? What do you see? And she said, I see that you are King Shaul. And he said, how can you tell that? She said, you tricked me. You're going to kill me now. King Shaul said to her, again, I promise, your life is safe. Please reveal what you see and why you made that statement. She said, because I see a heavenly person who just rose up out of the deep. I know that you must be king because of the manner in which he came forward. The head first rather than feet first. The usual manner in which a dead person is brought by these magicians is with the feet coming up first, the head down. He comes with his head up, and this is done out of respect only to a king. At the same time, I see two people, two venerable sages. If I cannot hear a word that is being said, you will have to speak to him and find out the details. And so King Shaul knew that she had succeeded. He spoke to this vision which he could not see. He called upon the prophet Shmuel, who was King Shaul's rabbi, and said, I was desperate for your help. Shmuel the prophet's voice came forward clearly only for King Shaul. No one else could hear it. Very angrily he said, how did you dare to bring me down here? How did you dare to frighten me? The Gemara says, very important to note, what did Shmuel the prophet mean when he said he was frightened? At the same time, the Gemara asks, who was this second person? He summoned only the prophet Shmuel. Why two people appear? The Gemara answers that Shmuel the prophet summoned suddenly to appear, thought he was being summoned to a trial, a heavenly trial. Now, the heavenly trial, the Gemara says, is one that every person who passes away must undergo. He's got to stand trial in heaven before the heavenly tribunal for all acts committed on earth. And then, if he is found innocent, he's found pure, he goes to get Aden to paradise only for a temporary period. Yes, in the future, when Mashiach comes, there'll be a second heavenly trial to again select the purest will remain for the new type of life that will exist long after Trias Amesim. That trial is called the Yom Hanora, the awesome, fearful day. A small prophet was frightened into thinking of his being summoned now for the second time. This must be that special second heavenly trial. So he said, I must bring to this trial a witness to testify on my behalf 
that I lived a life of purity. He asked Moshe Rabbeinu to come with him. The Gemara says this second person with Shmuel the prophet was Moshe Rabbeinu, who agreed to accompany him and to testify that every one of the mitzvahs of the Torah had been purely abided by, complied with by Shmuel the prophet. Now, King Shaul asked, he said, as long as you are here, I must have your help. I have tried in every other manner possible to communicate with heaven. I've tried going through the prophets. I could not make any contact. Tried going through tefillah, through prayer, no contact either. There's no other way. And the Lord says at that moment in heaven, a voice came out and said, King Shaul, you have committed a great sin, a crime, in killing the family of the Kohanim. But a person who commits a crime and feels deep remorse, deep regret, embarrassment over it, he is forgiven for that sin from heaven. Here, King Shaul was too embarrassed to say that he had asked the Kohen Gadol through the chest plate this question about his future. He was embarrassed that the Temeshnevi Gos just bring up his crime. Because of that busha, that embarrassment, that sense of shame, this was enough to have his sin forgiven. So Shmuel the prophet finally answered and said to him, I will tell you what the future holds in store for you. In this battle, this ensuing battle between the Jews and the Philistines, you must be aware of the fact that you and your three sons will die. Now, I advise you not to evade that battle. Go into this battle happily, with confidence. Do not shirk your duty as king, as leader of the Jews, and tomorrow you will be with me. With me meaning your life will have ended. But with me means more important, the high level of Ganeden, paradise that I am in, you'll be able to join. Which proves that all these statements in the Torah about the sins of King Shaul, the impurity, his wrong acts, are all a facade, a covering for something very deep. King Shaul was pure. The day that he passed away, the Gemara says, was as pure as the day he was born. So much so that he was Zohar, privileged to reach the highest level of Gan the same level as Shmuel the prophet. This was the message he received from Shmuel the prophet. And so the vision disappeared, and King Shaul sat down very sadly after having heard this notice, and the woman said to King Shaul, as long as she had the assurance he would not kill her, she said, Your Majesty, allow me the privilege, the honor of offering you a meal now. And he said, I couldn't eat. It's impossible. I must fast today after having heard my sentence being passed. She said, as long as you're alive, you have to guard your health, eat, and live normally. She persuaded him to accept this meal. We note that there are two sides to her nature. One, that she was a magician, which means a crime that deserves a penalty of death. Second, despite that, she also had a nature of goodness, of kindness, a concern for a human being, a respect for a king show, and the feeling, of the desire to serve a tzaddik. To her, there was no greater thrill or accomplishment than serving a meal to a tzaddik like King Shaul. And therefore, she is placed in a good light 
in the words of the Torah. The question, of course, arises, before we go further, how is it possible that a woman of this ilk, who was not pure, after all, she was guilty, deserving a death penalty, how can a woman of this type have the power to bring down one so great and so holy as Shmuel the prophet? How could she accomplish that which all the prophets combined could not, and that which the Urim Betumim, the Kohen Gadol, could not either? What gave her this power? And was it really her power that did it? Secondly, how come that King Shoal could not himself be answered from heaven directly, and only through this woman did he receive the answer through Shmuel the prophet? Why this meeting between himself and Shmuel the prophet under such strange circumstances? The answer is two very vital answers. Nosanzal says, first, it is true that King Shoal could not make contact with heaven through the prophets or any other manner, direct contact with heaven. Heaven refused to speak to King Shoal after the acts he committed, in which he alienated himself with the good graces of heaven. But we see the kindness, the concern that a rabbi has for his student. Shmuel the prophet considered King Shoal his closest disciple, his favorite student, and was willing to descend from the paradise, from the Garden of Eden, from Gan Eden, to help, to assist King Shoal to ease his mind. Now, of course, why through this woman? How could a Tomei woman have powers over the great tzaddik and the souls in heaven? How could she make such contact in general? Why don't we find such things existing today? We know that today there are persons who arrange seances and so on, and we know that they are complete frauds. No one has that power today at all. Dossenzel says the answer very simply and clearly is that in those days there was, there existed true magic. There were magicians, sorceresses who could perform real miracles, who could actually make contact with heaven, with angels in heaven, and with the souls in heaven. Why could such evil people perform such miracles? What gave them these powers? The answer is that the world could not exist otherwise. Hashem has always kept the world with an equal balance of good and evil. There must be this equal balance so that at no time could a person say that it is obvious, it is obvious that the Torah is correct, it is obvious that the tzaddikim are right, and that the Goyim or the Rishon are wrong, or the other way around. There must be this equal balance so that there would always be a freedom of choice, good or evil. A person could never be swayed to one side more than the other. As long as there were tzaddikim in the past, in those days, that could perform miracles at will, if only they existed, then every person would see clearly that this was the truth. These tzaddikim prove there is a Hashem, there is a heaven, there is a sechav reward and punishment. It's impossible to commit a sin then. Therefore, Hashem gave the same powers to the evil forces that, again, there'd be this balance, a person would be left in doubt as to which one to follow, 
he would have to select the one according to his own choice. And according to the one that he chose, that's how he'd be judged. To this very day, if today we do not have tzaddikim who can perform miracles openly, therefore we also do not have magicians or evil powers that can perform miracles too. Today too, both are practically on the same level. There always, of course, was more power to the good than the evil. There's always been at least that slight amount of additional force on the side of good. Today we do have still tzaddikim who can accomplish more than the worst evil forces on earth. And that's because Hashem always gave a slight bulge to the side of the scales of good. It's up to a person to be wise enough to detect this and to select that side which is righteous and pure and deserve merit for himself and eternal life of happiness in the future. So King Shaul left, he came home and prepared for this battle. Now, before the battle began, as we said, King David was expelled from the army of the Philistines. He was forced to return home. He took a 600 men and went back to the city of Ziklag. When he came there, he was shocked to find that the entire city was in ruins. Everything had been destroyed by a band of marauders, attackers who had plundered their village, their own city, had destroyed everything and had stolen, robbed anything of value, and had taken captive all the wives the wives of the men, including King David's wives, too. The men broke down, they cried, and they blamed King David for their lot. These were loyal followers of King David, but they couldn't take it, the fact that their close relatives, the wives and children were captives, it was too much for them. So King David said, today we fast and we daven, we pray. And then we'll turn to Hashem, requesting for assistance and guidance how to go about retrieving our losses. That day they fasted and prayed, and then King David turned to the Urim Vitumim, the chest plate of the coin God, on which he made contact with heaven, and he asked, shall I pursue this band who attacked, and will I be able to overtake them? The answer came back from heaven, yes, on both counts. So he took his 600 men, told them we are certain of victory. They began to follow the tracks of this band, and on the way, it was a long trip, 200 men fell out, they were tired, and they were told to wait behind and watch the belongings of the other 400. King David and 400 would continue on to pursue this band. Further on, they found a, a boy, Egyptian slave, who had been dropped by his master en route, and they questioned him. He told them, he belonged to a master, Amaleki, from the tribe of Amalek, who had dropped him. And this tribe of Amalek had attacked the city of Tsiklag. He told them all the details about it. They knew they were on the right track. They continued on, and they came to a rise in which they could look down, and they saw the large band of Amalekim celebrating their victory with all the plunder and loot of <coughs> King David's city, plus many others. They also saw the wives and children there, and so, that night, King David and his men attacked. They wiped out the entire band of Amalekim. They retrieved their lost articles, plus a lot of additional treasure for wives and children. And they went back to their own village. They came there, a problem arose, some friction arose between the men themselves. 
because the 400 men said we were in battle, we fought for this return of our family. Why should we share equally with the loot, with the 200 remaining behind? 200 were afraid, they didn't have the courage to join us. King David said that we will share and share alike with all. Not only that, but henceforth a law that will remain forever in the Jewish army that at all times, if a part of the army stays behind to guard the homes, the city, or to guard the, the supplies, they must receive equal share in the booty that results in this battle with those who actually go into battle. This is to show that a victory is not due to the courage or the fighting spirit of the men, Victory is due to an act of Hashem. If Hashem wants, one side wins regardless of what numbers they have. As Hashem is not with them, then actually they lose. This remained as an eternal law in the Hebrew camp. Now, the next day, the war broke out between the Jews and the Philistines. King David could know nothing about this battle. He was kept semi-prisoner in his own village of Ziklag. In this battle, the war, of course, took a very bad turn. Philistines knew whom to aim for. They could recognize the chariot coach of the, the royal insignia, the king and his three sons. The first ones to fall in this battle to be killed were the three sons of King Shaul, the other son of his two brothers. Then the Philistines yelled for a stronger charge and attack against the king himself and the sharpshooters began to aim at King Shaul. Finally he was hit directly. He fell to the ground mortally wounded. He called his private servant over and told him if I remain this way dying and the Philistines come and get me they will enjoy a victory unparalleled and they will use me as a symbol to disgrace the entire Jewish nation. They will torture me to the end and embarrass me and of course disgrace the idea of the Jewish royalty. Therefore to avoid this I ask you, my loyal servant to help me, take out your sword and kill me. Spare me this embarrassment. The servant began to cry and said, I could never raise my hand against the Jewish king. No matter what the circumstance, I couldn't do it. The king Scholz said, very well then, I must have the last bit of strength that I have. He took his spear, set it into the ground, and fell forward upon the spear. When the servant saw this, he took his spear too, and he too fell upon his spear and died. And later the Philistines came, they found the dead body of King Scholz. They cut off his head, and they carried it in victory to their city. Next day, the inhabitants of Yavesh Gilad, the Jews in Yavesh Gilad, called upon volunteers, and the mighty, valiant, courageous warriors got up, traveled all night, penetrated behind the lines of the Philistines, entered into the city where the body of King Shaul was, they collected his body and brought it back to their own city and there buried King Shoal with 
while honor. His belongings were burnt, as is the Hebrew law. That which belongs to the king must be burnt because no one else is permitted to use it. This act of theirs, of course, was later rewarded by King David. But more so in the fact that the Torah stresses it, it's mentioned in the Torah to show the heroism of these men who are willing to offer their lives to sacrifice for the cover, the honor of the Jewish king. But meanwhile, King David was waiting back in the city of Ziklag with bated breath for news about this battle. While waiting, he noticed <coughs> a runner coming towards him. He came to his home carrying a small package. He came into King David, he fell before us, he bowed before him and said, I come to, I bring you news of the battle. And King David said, what is the news? Very apprehensively. He said, well, the Jews have lost, of course, but I bring you happy news. The three sons of King Shaul were killed, and so too was King Shaul. I have here his crown, which now belongs to you. And King David said, happy news. How do you know that King Shaul is dead? This person said, very simple, I killed him. King David said, how did you explain how you killed him? What were the circumstances? He said, when I was standing nearby, he was hit, fatally wounded. He asked his servant to complete the job. His servant refused, and so he fell forward on a spear. When he did that, his servant did so too, not realizing that King Shaul was not dead yet. King Shaul saw me, asked who I was, and I said, I am from the tribe of Amalek. Who was from the tribe of Amalek? Now I am Jewish. My father was an Amaleki who converted. So he said, in that case then, help me. I did not succeed in killing myself. Draw your sword and kill me. And so, he said, I did. I completed the job for him, knowing that I was helping you. I brought you his crown. I know you wanted it so badly. King David said to this person, if you had not come and told me this, your life might have been spared. You have just ordered your own execution. You dared to raise a hand against the king of the Jews. To take his life, you now deserve death and you'll receive it. Only I don't even want to touch you. He ordered his servants to kill this Amaleki descendant immediately. He was killed, and then King, King David sat down to mourn the passing of the king of the Jews and his sons. Most of all, he mourned the passing of Yonason, the prince, the son of King Shaul, because the Gemara says that never in history was there a friendship a bond of friendship that was so solid, so sincere, so binding, such purity as that of King David and Yonason. And the statement which brings us out most strongly, the poetic words of King David when he said, Neflesa ahavas chali meahavas noshem, that generally, a true affection is found between man and woman, husband and wife.
an affection of devotion and loyalty such as that which existed between Yonason and King David was greater than that of any man and woman in history. So he mourned the passing of Yonason more so even than that of King Shaul. He declared a period of seven-day fast for all Jews to mourn the, this passing and then he decided to return from the land of the Philistines to the land of Israel there to take over the kingdom which was rightfully his. When he came back he found that there was competition. The general of King Shoal, Avner, who was fiercely loyal to King Shoal, decided to take King Shoal's remaining son, a very young and weak son, and to crown him as king. The people feared Avner, and so now the people were divided. It was sort of a civil strife, but the tribe of Yehuda accepted King David as king, and the rest of the Jews, mostly with Benjamin, accepted Avner's choice selection of King Shaul's son. And so there were two kings reigning for a period of two years' time until a new battle, civil war, erupted, and this finally decided the, where the kingdom remained. We'll continue this story at the next Novi session. Let us hope that we will be zochet to the king, King David's descendant, Mashiach. We'll be zochet to see now in our time take over the kingdom of the Jews to realize the kibbutz Goliath. They'll return all Jews to the rightful place in Eretz Israel uh, with a victory over all the enemies of the Jews. Rebuilding of the base of Mikdash from Heda We continue the Shear in Navi Jewish history. The last uh, Shear we discussed the passing, the death of Shaul HaMelech, King Shaul, and it would be very improper for us to leave the topic as we left it without further clarification. Specifically, the question that was brought up should be discussed much more in detail. Remember we mentioned that King Shoal was struck by the Philistine sharpshooters in the battlefield. He was mortally wounded and while lying there he pleaded with his servant to slay him, kill him, spare him the agony and disgrace at the hands of the Philistines if they would catch him before he died. His servant refused and so King Shoal took his spear, placed it on the ground, his sword, and fell forward on it, trying to kill himself. He did not succeed. Eventually, an Amaleki young boy killed him. The question is, one of the worst possible crimes, or one of the worst sins conceivable, is the sin of suicide. In one respect, it is the worst sin possible, because there is no sin that exists for which a person cannot repent. Every sin, regardless of its magnitude, regardless of how many times a sin is repeated, a Jew is given the privilege of repenting for. 
the gate, the doorway to repentance is always open, but as long as a Jew is alive. Once he passes away without repenting, no matter how much he cries or attempts to repent afterwards, at the trial in heaven, it is completely wasted, futile, There's no repentance after that. The same as there is no repentance after Mashiach comes. Imagine, the Gemara says that now the Goyim, the evil nations who attack the Jews at will and without reason, in such a sadistic manner, do so because they regard the Jew as inferior, as a nation that does not deserve to survive. When Mashiach comes, suddenly they will learn the truth that the Jews are the actually chosen people by Hashem. What will their reaction be then? We're very sorry, we'd like to join you. We want to convert. At that time, the reply in heaven will be, it's too late. You can convert, you can become a Jew, you can become one of those chosen people too, though you were not born a Jew. <coughs> Only if you do so, during the time that the Jews are downtrodden, not after Mashiach comes and the truth comes out. So too, a person can repent for his sins during his lifetime before he sees the truth in heaven. Once he gets there and realizes the true fact is that there is reward and punishment in heaven, it's too late then to say he repents, he's sorry. That repentance is not a sincere one. So during a person's lifetime he can repent for any sin, no matter which it is. But if he commits suicide, naturally it's too late to repent. He's no longer alive. So in that respect, suicide is the worst possible sin. Aside from that, the point is that suicide is a sin for which there is practically no excuse. Now, practically means that there is an exception. In the case of Shoal HaMelech, the Din in Yerdea states very clearly, Yerdea Simishin and Hay, then says, quoting the Ramban, quoting the Medrash, Rashis Noach, which says that suicide is a sin that is paramount size, but not in the case of Shoal Hamelach, not in the case of King Shoal. His act did not constitute suicide. And here we have an explanation for it. Let us take an example of what is suicide. For example, Piscay brings that if a person is suffering physically, a very serious ailment, and he is in agony and torture, is he permitted to take his own life? The answer is definitely not. We have proof from a Gemara, an outstanding case in the Gemara, which conclusively proves this point. The case of Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion. The Gemara tells that story very vividly of how he was taken by the Roman king. He was one of the ten holy rabbis who were put to death in different forms of torture. His case was one where they bound him with a Sefer Torah in his arms. He was bound tightly and with branches underneath him that was set on fire. He was placed there to burn to death. 
But if any Mitragian was bound by the Roman soldiers, put the Savitar in his arms, and his sentence was to die by fire. However, the Gemara says that this king was so cruel, so vicious, so heartless, that he ordered that sponges of wool, thick sections of wool, be placed over him. And these sections of wool be saturated with water that would delay his passing away. He would suffer in the fire, but he would not be burnt. He would just suffer the pain, the torture, without losing consciousness, without dying quickly. He delayed action to have him undergo this torture in a prolonged manner. Iwara says that his students turned to him, they asked him a few questions. They saw him looking skyward. They asked him, Rebbe, what do you see? He said, I see Hebrew letters, Torah letters, floating upwards to heaven. These are the letters of the Sefer Torah. These goyim can burn, can destroy the parchment. They cannot destroy the letters, the words of Hashem. Why are you smiling, they asked. During this period of torture, how do you smile? And he said, I'm happy because I did not know whether my death would be avenged. Now that I see the Sefer Torah, scroll of Hashem, being desecrated, then he who will avenge the desecration of the Sefer Torah will also avenge my death. Third, they asked, this is obviously unbearable torture. question was asked painstakingly. They said, Rabbeinu, our rabbi, why don't you open your mouth? If you would open your mouth, you would draw in, inhale the smoke, the fumes, the flame. You would die quickly, practically instantly. That would spare you the physical torture of having to wait until the flames worked their way through the saturated wool objects. Mechlimetradion said, I cannot do that, because if I open my mouth, take these flames in, these fumes in, that would constitute suicide. Let he who granted me this soul be the one to take it from me. Let me not surrender it myself. Here the Shulchan Aruch, the Din says, we have definite proof that though a person is suffering unbearable torture, he still is not permitted to commit suicide in order to escape the pain and the suffering. We therefore cannot say that King Shoal, who was suffering mortally wounded, was justified in committing suicide, taking his own life by falling forward on his sword. This is not the reason why King Shoal's act was not considered suicide. In this case, the reason was that he felt there was a greater Kiddush Hashem sanctifying the name of Hashem by him killing himself rather than waiting to be killed. As, for example, again, the Gemara Tosavos gives the illustration, time of the Churban Beis HaMikdash, time of the destruction of the Second Holy Temple. The Gemara says that 400 Pirchei Kahuna, 400 youths of the Kohanim, selected youths, selected because of their extreme good looks, extremely handsome, were captured by the Romans, placed on board a ship to be taken to Rome, and there to be used for illegal 
purposes, illicit purposes, wrong, the sexual acts, and so on. These 400 students, 400 youths, turned to their leader, their rabbi, and asked him if we should leap into the sea and drown, will we get Canadian? Will we still merit receiving paradise? And he answered, there is a Pasuk and Tillam, Miboshon Oshiv, Oshiv and Tulos Yom. King David said, Miboshon Oshiv, a person who is worried about getting to heaven, about Chiyas HaMesim, coming back to life, the time when the dead are resurrected, Chiyas HaMesim. This person is worried because he's about to be eaten by a lion. But a lion will leave nothing, no remains whatsoever. What is there of him to rise up again when the dead come back to life? Or Mimtulas Yom, person who drowns, falls overboard, and is eaten by the fish of the sea, is eaten by sharks. Nothing remains. How will he get to Tchias HaMesim? And the answer is, the rabbi told me in the, in the words of King David, just as there are mechilos, just as the Gemara says that when Mashiach comes, time of Tchias HaMesim afterwards, the dead will rise up to life in Eretz Yisrael, in Israel. What about all those who are buried outside of Israel? Gemara says there will be tunnels. There are tunnels underground. And what these did will go through Mechilos, will travel in these, through these tunnels to Eretz Israel, there to rise up. The same thing, too, there are tunnels in the sea through which they will travel till they get to Eretz Israel. This, of course, whether we take this literally or otherwise, it's our duty not to question these words since they are the words of the Torah. So, if, for example, there is no trace left of a body, what is there to travel? What is there to go through the tunnels? The answer is that, as the Gemara says, the question that Cleopatra once asked Rabbi Meir, when the dead rise up, will they rise up in their clothing, or will they require new clothing? The Meir answered, since Hashem created man originally from nothing, it was nothing, iron, and he created something from nothing, we know that he did that, and certainly it's a much smaller task to recreate something that existed, which was destroyed. And therefore a body that was destroyed, for Hashem to recreate that body, to rejuvenate it, is much easier than it was originally to create man from nothing at all. So, in this case, the mechilos were made. The this answer to these 400 youths was, you can leap into the sea, you'll be assured of coming back to life. Eventually, you'll be assured of going to Ganeden. Question was, what about the suicide aspect of it? If they were committing suicide, there surely could be no future reward for them. Hayatelsma says, the answer is that they were doing this to save themselves not from physical agony, but from desecrating the most important mitzvah in the Torah, Abris. For this, they were permitted to commit suicide in order to avoid this disgraceful type of sin. In the case of Shaul HaMelech II, his act was one for the sake of the cover of the honor of Hashem. There be no greater disgrace to the Jewish religion in the name of Hashem than to have the body of the king desecrated at the time of death 
by the Philistines. Therefore, his act was completely justified, did not fall into the category of suicide whatsoever, and so he passed away as a complete tzaddik. This is just a bit to elaborate on that point, not to leave that question in abeyance. And of course, above all, to strengthen ourselves, the Amuna, the faith in the words of the Torah, the words of Hashem, when the Torah says that Shaul HaMelech passed away as a tzaddik, assured so by Shmuel the prophet, who told him that the day he passes away, he would join him the highest level of Ganadin.